Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But... If you like what you hear, you want to help us out, you want to do something nice, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, as well as giving us a follow on social media at Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. I want to wish a happy Boxing Day to all my friends up north. And of course, Boxing Day means the start of World Juniors. So this is going to be a really quick intro because I've actually got a Switzerland versus Czech Republic game on right now. And I want to get back to watching that. But before I do that, I want to go ahead and set the stage for part two of our interview with Jamie Rivers. During part one, we talked about the beginning of the 0102 season. Jamie starting with the Ottawa Senators and then being waived and picked up by the Boston Bruins. Talked about a few of his teammates during part two, though. We really get in depth, talk a lot more about his teammates, especially Joe Thornton. He tells a hilarious story about him and Joe Thornton and believe it or not, a pellet going into his head. He also talks a lot about the playoffs from that year. He talks about playing with Dennis Bonvi, PJ Stock, and we definitely touch on the PJ Stock Stephen Pete fight, which I think it's safe to say was probably one of the best fights of that season, the 0102 season. I definitely can't wait to interview Jamie again and have him come back on. I think we're going to do an episode coming up here shortly, hopefully, on the New York Islanders. So definitely a great guest and can't wait to talk with him again. One last thing before we get to the interview, just a reminder, as a thank you from me to you guys for all the support you've given me over the past few months. We're doing a little bit of a drawing. I'm giving every listener an opportunity to win a $10 gift card. All you got to do is leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've already done it, you're automatically entered on January 1st. I'll go ahead and reveal the winner on our Facebook page. So be sure to follow us on Facebook if you want to compete in the contest. All you got to do is leave a review. If you've already left a review, you're automatically entered. I'm going to give away a $10 gift card to NHL.com. Let's go ahead and get to part two of our interview with Jamie Rivers as we discuss the 0102 Boston Bruins season. The winning continues in Boston. You guys end the year with five straight wins. You end up finishing against the Tampa Bay Lightning. You end up bouncing them. Everything's going right at this point, man. You've got to be enjoying yourself. What's going on in your mind? You just earlier in the year, you were in Ottawa. Things didn't really work out there. You've got to be pretty happy in Boston. Well, you know, it's as crazy as it sounds like I had had quite a few seasons of winning under my belt. That is NHL. true. That is true. We had a real good team in St. Louis when I started out here and then uh, went to the Islanders, which was a learning experience, but it was great for me to get a lot of ice time and, and kind of become an all uh, regular NHLer. And then going to Ottawa, we were first place. Then go to Boston, first place. Like, I'm kind of used to this winning thing. Yeah, it <laughs> just follows point. you. It just follows you around at this point, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm the answer. That's I'm sticking to that one. Hey, see, they're, <laughs> they're going to recall you now. Uh, January, yeah. January 5th, we kick off the new year. The Boston Bruins score off against the Washington Capitals. And during this game, oh, my God, the fight of the year takes place between P.J. Stock and Stephen Pete. Do you remember watching this thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd kind of feel like at that point, and just to kind of give a little backstory here on this. Please. You know, I'm playing center at mm-hmm. this point, and my wingers are PJ Stock and Dennis Bonvi. I was going to ask time. about him next. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, we were the teal line in practice. And now Wayne Cashman, I'll tell you what, 
you talk about a guy like, you know, Ken Hitchcock these days is calling that Lucic line, like their identity line. Mm -hmm. And Cash took it upon himself to, you know, he'd always come in and be like, how's the teal line doing? (laughs) You know, we played like four or five minutes a game and like we, not that we weren't relevant, but sometimes you can feel like you're not. And Cashman came in and made us feel relevant and gave us a role and gave us a purpose. And we started to play really well as a line together. And, you know, I'm running around hitting everything that moves because I've got PJ Stock and Dennis Bonvi on my line. I'm like, how bad can it possibly get for me? I was going to say, you got the best bodyguards in the world on your line. Yeah, it was great. I Honestly, you talk about skating around with like balls the size of church bells at the time. <laughs> and so it was great, uh, you know, and then leading up to this game and Stalker had had a few really good fights. And PJ was like that guy, like he reminded me of John Cordick mm-hmm. and – you know, because those were the old school guys. It was like grip and rip, right? Like there was no holding on. It was a punch in the face contest. And, you know, PJ wasn't a big guy at all. And so he couldn't do the hanging on and, and try to wrestle because he just wasn't big enough or I don't want to say strong enough because he, he's obviously a strong guy. But when you get into those clinches with some of these big, tough guys, like you're just not going to win that battle. So he took it upon himself to become like an all offense fighter. And so if there was a guy that was punching with his right hand, Stalker would throw left hands. And if the guy switched and went left, he'd go right. And it was always like, just go, go, go rock them, sock them robots. And, you know, Stephen Pete was much the same. He wasn't afraid to let loose and just fly the knuckles back and forth. And so they, kind of lined up and they were chit-chatting and this and that and the other and i believe it was like a saturday afternoon it was i still remember where i was i was a senior in high school as i've told you i'm from washington dc i was watching the game and when the punches started i said when are they going to (laughs) stop they just kept going and going and going and it was unbelievable it was nuts like i'm standing right there and it was an ESPN game, yep. I believe. Yep, and it was a national so, broadcast. Yeah, and so at the time, nobody was really frowning upon fighting. Mm-mm. So at that time, it was like, wow, this is awesome for ratings. I think ESPN thought it was great. And I remember watching it back again after that, thinking to myself, it looks like somebody pushed fast forward. Like That's a great way to put flying. it. So that is a fast. yeah. That's a fantastic way to put it. Yeah, it's like you know how you just kind of speed it up just a little bit. That's mm-hmm. how their fists are flying back and forth. And Stephen Pete was a big, thick guy too. And you know, Stalker just hangs in there. And I, PJ ends up getting the best of him at the end of it. And I just remember it being such a boost for our team and for the guys. And it was a lot of fun. I, I miss that. I, I miss that. And I, and I know we still have fighting a little bit, but it's just not the same. And and I don't think it ever will be. No, it, it's not. And, you know, what people don't realize is then there was a purpose to it. Like, right. I mean, I know that for a while after that, there were a lot of, I don't call them stage fights because I think that's insulting to the players, but there was a lot of the stand back, throw the buckets down and tough guy versus tough guy. And it's like, I don't know. It just became too much of the theatrics. And I think that that's kind of what hurt it. But back then, like it was go time. These guys weren't messing around. It meant something. Guys were fighting with a purpose, fighting for their team, fighting for their fans. And especially in Boston, like the fans are so blue collar. And I remember 
myself, PJ Stock, and Dennis Bonvie were like the marshals of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Because <laughs> wow, and, like yeah, and they had us wearing our like teal jerseys from practice because good old Cash had started this teal line thing, you know, the teal line, the teal line, and then it got to the point where like we were starting games and. Cash would pull us in before the game and say, okay, so tonight I don't want anybody fighting. Nothing. No fighting. I don't care what happens. We're not fighting. I'll throw and, everybody off. And, well, that's it. And then they'd be like, what the hell? So the other team would always start their like crazy tough guys. And then we'd run around like fools and not fight. Nothing. Skate away. And it would drive them nuts. And then like the next time we played that team, he'd be like, okay, you guys are starting. He's like, I want all out mayhem. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. And he was, I don't know if he was working us like that, but he was. But at the same time, it gave us a purpose on that team. And it helped. Like we went into games, I, we were like a plus five or a plus six line as a whole, which is a lot when you're a fourth liner. It, it was fun. We were running around and we had a purpose. And, you know, we were embraced by that Boston Bruins that attitude, and, that, that, yeah. that northern attitude. And my wife's from Boston. She reminds me of it every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're from Boston, you, you're proud of that. Yeah. You got a little bit of edge to you. You got that mass hole a little bit, you yep. know, like you just, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. And you talk about Dorchester, man, they're, they're much rougher than that. No, and that, that was lots of fun too. By the way, that being the grand marshal of St. Patty's day parade going through Dorchester, I like, I think at like 7 AM we were completely incoherent. And oh my God. I green beer everywhere. I'm sure. Oh, it was nuts. It was awesome. And, People there were a riot. I, I look back on my time very, very fondly in Boston. We talked about fighting, and even Byron Defoe likes to drop the gloves every now and then. On January 17th, the Ottawa Senators come into town, and he ends up squaring off with Patrick Laline. Talk about goalie fights. Byron Defoe, we haven't really talked about him. Is that something that's up his alley? You know what? You get those goalies that always are just dying to get into a fight. Like, you mm -hmm. know, you get, we talk about goalies being a little wacky and mm -hmm. things like that. And, but Baez, he was a guy that always wanted to get into the, the fracas, you know, always wanted to be involved and, and he, you know, wanted to stick up for his teammates. And I remember we had a game against Ottawa that we, you know, it got rough and this and that and the other. And, you know, Patrick Laleem, I had known from playing in Ottawa and, you know, he was kind of a feisty Frenchman. And so when it all was kind of going down, I'm like, this is going to happen, boys. We're going to have a fight. And they're like, come on. You know, they're like, Laleem's not going to fight. I'm like, watch it. I'm telling you right Bring now. Bring the said, popcorn out. Here we go. Yeah, I'm like, we're, we're going to have one. They're in one right now. I guarantee it. And sure as hell, you know, they go on to have a scrap and buys. He's all fired up. And, you know, our whole bench, our fans, are everything. It was awesome. It was oh, great. God, I miss those days. Are you still good for a few more minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. A few games later, the Bruins suffer a rare stomping from the New York Rangers. It was actually Theo Fury's 1,000th game. Defoe let in eight goals and made comments after the game that he wasn't happy that he hadn't been pulled by Robbie Fatorik. As a hockey guy, and, and I, I've just got to ask, when a goalie gets lit up like that, what's your thoughts? I mean, a few years before, Patrick Waugh had had that issue in Montreal where he was left in the net, and he basically said, I want out of here. Do you recall this game, and, and how would you have handled it maybe? Yeah, you know, look, it, I, nobody's happy when a game gets to be like that, when it's mm -hmm. out of reach. And goalies are competitive guys, and whether we admit it or not, every player has an ego to them. And mm -hmm. It's what creates their swagger. And so, you know, Bizey, you know, they're getting lit up and then the whole thing, like, it's just, 
I don't think it was a big deal. And I don't think anybody ever thought it was a big deal. It was just, you know, an emotional moment where things were crappy. And look, Robbie Fatoric, like I said, he was a different dude. He thought life in a different way than most people do. And sometimes I came across as maybe reckless a little bit or careless, probably a better word as a coach. And I think Byron thought that, you know, at that point, Robbie wasn't really thinking of Byron so much. And so from what I remember that it got squashed like there there was no issue really it was probably more of an issue in the papers and that's why i found something on it than actually it being an issue in the locker room yeah like it may have been an issue like right away after the game because everybody's heated and people are ticked off and whatnot but like there was no carryover from what i remember at that time do you put defoe in the top five goalies in the national hockey league he was incredible yeah i i I definitely think for that era at that time he was that was his best hockey he was awesome. And, you know, like he wasn't a very big guy either. And he was, uh, it's so funny to talk about how a guy was a butterfly goalie. Like, cause it, I sound like I'm dating myself. Right. right yeah. But that was his style of play. And I know the league had been trending in that direction. And a lot of guys were playing that way, but Baizu was really good um, at kind of a hybrid where, you know, he, he, be down and athletic and acrobatic and then there's other games where he would just come out cut out the angle tuck his chin in and just stand tall and just take it it was yeah and take it and so uh, nothing but respect for goalies but certainly a lot of respect for byron i loved having him as a goalie i loved him as a teammate and just a great guy in late january of 2002 the bruins score a win over the florida panthers with a four to two win the team's leading scorer joe thornton gets two goals and the second goal ends up being his 100th goal we touched on Joe a little bit as a young guy. One thing that that kind of blows me away by him is, is he hasn't won a cup yet. And so some people say the argument for the Hockey Hall of Fame, you've got to win one. You were around him during his younger days. You've seen him play. Do you think there's a spot for him eventually in the Hockey Hall of Fame? There has to be. Yeah. I mean, there just has to be. Like, you know, he came in the league at 18. And at the time, and you have to think back of his first what, nine, ten years in the league. I, I mean, he was about as scary as any player there was. Like, as far as talent goes, one of the most talented individuals. Uh, you know, he was a mix of scoring and passing. Obviously, his passing has become highlighted in the latter part of his career. But what people can't forget is just how tough he was, yeah. too. Like, we used to joke around, and like you didn't want to pet the cat the wrong way with Joe. And some teams would do that. They'd try to rough him up and whatnot. And he just had a snap button that would just go off. And he'd grab somebody and throttle them. And you'd be like, <sighs> oh, my God. Like, that's he's a six foot four, 225, 230-pound guy who's, like, beating the crap out of guys, but then we'll have four points on the night too. We'll have these hands that can do anything and then he can drop the gloves and pound you with them. Yeah. And he could skate, he could hit, he could kill penalties. He was my roommate when I was in Boston. We were on road trips because back then guys had to room together Mm -hmm. and Joe was my roommate. And it was funny because, you know, I'm not old, but I'm a little older at the time. And, you know, Joe's a young guy and we had a lot of fun. Like it's still to to this day, when we see each other, we laugh like crazy and and talk about good times. And but the Joe came to compete every night, man. Like he he was a a true leader. And uh, Stanley Cup, that ultimate prize, has eluded him so far. 
but it hasn't been because he's not a good leader. It hasn't been because he's not a, a great talent. And it's not certainly not because he doesn't care. I mean, name one guy that's ever played with him that says, oh, I don't think Joe Thornton cared. And I, you can't find that guy. And so for me, Joe's a, a shoe-in as a Hall of Famer for several reasons. Like if you're going to put Eric Lindros in the Hall of Fame, I'm sorry. That's you a great, have yeah. to put Joe Thornton in there. Like Joe was the big man who played just as tough, just as hard, and probably, in my opinion, probably even more skilled. And also did not piss off an entire province. No, he did. <laughs> no, he did not piss off an entire province, and that still hasn't had a hockey team since that draft. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that, though. You, no. you, you talked about Joe, and he played with Sergei Samsonov, and they had amazing chemistry. Talk about two opposite players. We haven't talked about Sergei. How would you describe him as a player? Oh my God, he was a little water bug out there. I mean. You talk about a guy who had skill level through the roof, and this is 2001, so you don't have the YouTube highlight reels that you're seeing these days, or you don't have the players that you've seen over the years that are creative and you're trying to build off other things. Like Sergey Samsonov was like the, the blueprint for like all that stuff, and he was amazing. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think him and Joe came in at the exact same time. Yep. And he had, you know, rookie of the year type season his first year. And Joe was kind of in the background and it didn't, you know, it took Joe a year or so to get going. But then once they both were flying, like they were, it was such a crazy duo because you had this little wee guy who was fast, could handle the puck, could score goals, was really hard to get off the puck. He was like a little bowling ball out there. And then you got the contrast of Joe Thornton, who's you know six four, huge man. He can skate. He can pass. Like it was really, it had to have been. And I played against them too. Um, it wasn't a good. It was hard playing against those guys. You knew you were in for a tough night. When I look at them, they're the most opposite guys, but they say opposites attract, and those guys got it done. Around this time, the Winter Olympic break is right around the corner. And this was a condensed season for, for you, you know, and I know you were in fantastic shape. Is it, is it harder to play in a condensed season like that? Does it take its toll on your body? You know, I, I had a couple of those in my career and I always liked it. Sure. You know, quite honestly, I'd rather be playing every other day than practicing three times a week. You know, that's, that was my aims and buddy is, uh, you love playing games and, that's the the biggest high for any player is to play in games. And so when you got them every second night, uh, it feels like you're playing games all season without any break. And yeah, it takes its toll on your body and you wear down and you know, you do have those periods halfway through the season where you're like, Oh my God, we're only halfway done. And we keep playing every other day, but I loved it. I, I didn't think anything wrong of it. And you know, Billy Garen had <clears throat> played that year and, and came back with a silver medal that year. And I remember, him coming back from the Olympics, coming over to our room, and me and Joe were like freaking out because he had a silver medal, and we had just watched him on TV, and it was cool. I thought it was awesome. I enjoyed the year, and I, the condensed season didn't bother me at all. After the Olympic break, you guys start off March with a bang. On the final day of February, the Carolina Hurricanes put a pounding on the Boston Bruins, but the Bruins refused to go down without a fight. Sergei Samsonov ends up with 20 minutes worth of penalties. Jumbo Joe gets a match penalty for attempting to injure Rod Brendamore. Before we really dig into this game, I have got to ask, 
How was Sergey Samsonov as a fighter? <laughs> well, you know what? It's what's funny is like I said, he was really strong, right? And he had great balance. And so, you know, he's scrappy little guy. And just because and you know as well as I do, just because a guy's, you know, small doesn't mean he can't fight. Oh, absolutely. Um, but we just hadn't seen that side of him. Uh, and it was one of those games, I don't remember it a ton, but it was one of those games where, you know, it was, stuff just kept happening. Right. And then you've got guys who were throwing down and like Samsonov is involved and then you got Joe and like, I think everybody was getting involved at some level in some capacity. And it's just one of those was a throwaway almost for us. And at that point, I think the guys were getting out some frustrations. In early March, um, the team makes a trade to shake up the lineup a little bit. Anaheim Duck Marty McKinnis is brought in for a Boston Bruins third-round pick. When a, something happens like that and the team is winning and you bring in a player, does that ever – or in this situation, let me, let me restate how I'm asking that. Does Marty McKinnis – does that ever disrupt the chemistry? Uh, it's, it's a fine line. You know, I think that uh, – you try to, as a team, you try to continue to improve your lineup and to, you know, at that, and at that point, that season, I know we were, you know, we were in discussion for taking a good run at the cup and, and trying to put together a team that could contend. And, you know, he was a hell of a player. And I, I think that the thought process was, we're going to add a really solid player. And, you know, he didn't, it's not like Marty McKinnis came in and hurt us. He didn't, he was a hell of a guy, hell of a player. Um, but for whatever reason, it, it, you know, it didn't help us. I think the way that, uh, that our team thought it would. And that's very fair. The team continues on throughout March and it's winning ways. It wins six in a row. Team's getting solid contributions from Brian Ralston, Glenn Murray, Joseph Stumpel, uh, Marty LaPointe. We haven't touched on LaPointe. Do you have any memories of Marty LaPointe and some of these guys I just mentioned? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I forgot about Roley. Uh, Brian Ralston was, I mean, you talk about a guy who was a two-way center at the time. He could fly out there, and he was great on penalty kill. Um, he was our, he'd play the point on the power play. Uh, just a great team guy. And then Marty LaPointe, it was great to play with Marty because we had gone head-to-head -head for years when he was in Detroit and I was in St. Louis, and I think we are both happy to see each other in the same locker room. <laughs> yeah, we're not beating the hell out of each other. Out of each other. Yeah. So, um, no, but the, you know, Marty was so strong as an individual. Like he's, a, he could bench press a house, you know, like he was just so physically strong and Roley was fast. And like I said, we were, we were kind of geared up to make a run that year. We had Rob Zammer, we had Brian Rolson, Marty LaPointe, PJ Axelson. I mean, we were stacked from top to bottom and it's, we had a really good group of guys too. So it wasn't just about talent and whatnot. Guys liked each other. Guys liked going to the rink. Guys liked hanging out with each other. It was a real unique group. The end of the season comes around. Bill Guerin ends up leading the team with 41 goals. Glenn Murray and Brian Rolston both uh, joined the 30 goal club as well. You're getting ready to play the Montreal Canadiens. This is one of hockey's best rivalries. And at the time, the rivalry was still alive. How excited were you to see that you were going to play against the Canadians? Well, it was awesome. You know, uh, you're going into a playoff round where, you know, you're feeling pretty confident about your chances and you're feeling, 
really excited about the possibility of you know playing the Montreal Canadiens and playing in that city and knowing the hype that surrounds these Boston Montreal games. So yeah, I was really excited to get going in that series. The series gets started, and, and we could probably do an entire episode on the series, so I don't really want to spend a lot of time on it. But what I, I do want to say is it did not end the way that everybody thought it would. Um, it ended in six. And, you know, just to kind of summarize, do you, looking back, is there anything you could have done differently, or, or, or what happened in that series? Well, Jose Theodore happened in that series. There, fair enough. Happened. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, really, you want to want to sum it up? And it's not even a sentence or, a, you know, a breakdown. It was just one guy. He was incredible, um, <clears throat> you know. And, they, you know, they had an emotional uh, push in that series because uh, Saku Koivu mm-hmm. had come back from, uh, you know, beating cancer and things like that. And he took the ice the very first night. And we just knew it was going to be a long night because now the place is going bananas and they're all – fired up and their goalie you can't get a grease bb past their goalie and it's like holy crap are we gonna be that team you know right and like right down to the last minute and we had a couple of things happen in that series like kyle mclaren literally tore off richard zednick's head with a hit oh and we had God. a couple of line brawls and i'll never forget being out there we we're having a five on five brawl we had two of them in that game and like a pair of binoculars go flying by my face <laughs> and hit the glass and Stuff is shattered everywhere, and then a fan tried to jump. Actually, a fan did jump over the glass and try to fight one of us on the ice. And like, and we were we still had another game to go in Montreal, so we're having to walk to the hotel. And you know, the first couple of guys walk out, and then they came right back in. They're like, "No, we ain't walking." Like people were <laughs> lined up down the street to try and beat the hell out of us. What and an so, experience! they had to call in the bus to come and get us and drive us like 50 yards over to the hotel. Cause there's no way we were going to get through there alive. And it was, I mean, you talk about a playoff series. <clears throat> I wish I could talk about it. Having won the series. Sure. That would have been, you know, that's a, a better story, at least for me. <laughs> no, I know. I get it. I get it. But you know, Jose Theodore was incredible. He made a save even in the last minute of play, we had the goalie pulled, and Bill Guerin had like a wide open net, like one timer, like on a rebound. And somehow he swung his arm back behind him and stopped it like Dominic Hasek style. And at that point, we're like sitting on the bench going, yeah, it's over. It's done. Like if we're not scoring there, like we're just not scoring. Yeah, it's just the hockey gods weren't there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Jamie, we're, we're almost going to wrap things up here. But I, I do have to ask, I want to circle back on one thing. You roomed with a young Joe Thornton. I've got to ask, do you have anything funny that you can share that's appropriate for the podcast? <laughs> you know what? Joey and I had a lot of fun, but like simple fun. Sure. Uh, of course we had, of course we had some nights out, long nights out and some, some fun and too many beverages and some of those stories. Um, but you know, Joey was just like, he, he hasn't changed and that, that part that you hear about him, about just enjoying life and having a bigger than life personality that was that was Joey, and you know we would go out sometimes and wake up the next morning, and you know you'd find the other guy sleeping underneath the desk or over the <laughs> corner, and you know, and he used to always try to give it to me because even though I wasn't that much older than him, he used to call me like an old goat. And I had a story that he 
he loves it. And if you ever get a chance to talk to him, he'll tell the story himself. But I had a, a pellet stuck in my head from an incident when I was a kid where we were playing like BB gun tag. Jesus. It sounds like a ridiculous thing, but it was kind of fun until one day a kid had a pellet gun and he shot me in the head. (laughs) And so, so many pieces just came. So many pieces (laughs) of the puzzle just came together. Well, this is why Joe used to love this story. And because he'd be like, well, who else, you know, who else do you know that gets shot in the head and talks about it? And so, I still had this pellet in my head. And I remember as a young kid, I didn't tell my parents because I was like, I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, my God. So everything, the skin had kind of grown over. And I had this like bump. And so I told Joe the story one time. We were out having a couple of sodas. (laughs) And so from that point on, he'd come in the locker room every day and be like, how's the pellet? How's the pellet? (laughs) I'm I'm like, it's doing okay. He's like, let me feel the pellet. So I'd walk over and he'd go under my head and feel the pellet and he'd always get grossed. I'd be like, Oh my God. Oh gosh. You know? And like, it got to be a funny joke. And so that off season, which was funny about it was I didn't know, but maybe touching it or messing with it so much aggravated that area. And I came back and the doctor was like, we got to take that out of your head. (laughs) I know it sounds hilarious. right? And so he cuts this thing out of my head and I tell him, I'm like, well, I want to keep it. And he's like, what? I'm like, I want to keep it. So he takes it out and hands it back to me in like this little plastic sealed bag. And so then the next time I see Joe, and we're not even teammates anymore at this point, I see Joe and I hand him this little envelope. <laughs> and he's like, what do you got? What is this? I go, just open it. He opens it. He's like, what the hell? I go, the pellet says hi. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> It's out of your head. Feeling my head, and like people around, or like we're in the hallways, and he's like grabbing at my head. He's like, "Oh my god, I got the pellet!" And so it was just kind of funny. So Joe Thornton was the uh, at one time was a proud owner of the pellet that was stuck in Jamie Rivers' head. I hope that thing is still around. If not, it's on its way to the Hockey Hall of Fame or something because I feel like that pellet has a whole other life of its own. Jamie, man, you were great. You were an awesome guest. I've taken a ton of your time. Tell everybody what you're up to now, man. Yeah, uh, I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a hockey company called Synergy Hockey, and we work with uh, a lot of youth and skill development. And then in the summers, we train a lot of NHLers that are continuing to work on things throughout the summer. So that keeps me busy. I do uh, some radio and TV for the Blues and also have my own podcast going on with our good friend, Darren Kimball. It's called uh, Blues NHL Podcast. It is based on mostly about the St. Louis Blues, but if you listen at all for any period of time, you'll see that we fly off the rails pretty quickly and we talk about a lot of stuff on there. Oh my God, it's hilarious. I've, I've heard a couple episodes. They gave me laughs and the podcast is really good. I'm not a Blues fan, but I do find it pretty insightful uh, what you guys share. Where can people download that? Where can they you know, find out about Synergy? Are you on social media? Where can people get you? Yeah, the podcast is STL Blues Podcast on Twitter. And the website is bluesnhlpodcast.com. And then you, uh, for Synergy Hockey, go under uh, for the website is synergyhockeyskills.com. Awesome. Check out all the fun stuff on there. Man, I can't thank Jamie enough for coming on the podcast. He really was hilarious. Like, how about that story between him and Joe Thornton? Can you imagine somebody walking up to you with like a pellet and being like, hey, Check this out. I don't know how I would react. I'd just be like, you got to be kidding me. That was lodged inside your head. 
Anyways, Jamie was a great guest. As I mentioned before, we're going to have him back on. Hey, want to wish everybody a happy new year. I don't think we're going to air a new episode next week. I think I'm going to take the week off so that way I can bank some more episodes, do some research, enjoy the world juniors. And then once we get through the new year, we're going to roll this thing hopefully every week and we'll have more interviews coming up with plenty more hockey greats. Anyways, make it a great week. Have a happy new year. And thanks for supporting us here at Snapshots in Hockey History.